All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, talking to you from New York City, the borough of Queens, on this, the 18th day of January 2022. I want to thank all of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I'd like to encourage you to send along whatever comments you have about this show positive, negative, or whatever, send them along. We'd like to hear from you. We also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. This week's sponsors are Novo Resources, El Oro Resources, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Lion One Metals, SK Mining, Firefox Gold, and Timberline Resources. Novo Resources has been a sponsor for this show for a number of years because it has been one of my favorite stocks. Uh, in transitioning from an exploration company with a very unconventional gold discovery in Australia and with some very uh, unusual production challenges, the company's level of production has been disappointing and its share price has fallen to around 90 cents U.S. in today's market. With Novo being a company I have covered in my newsletter and with it being one of my largest personal holdings, I would be lying if I told you I was happy about the outcome so far. But after decades of watching the mining sector, I have come to realize how important it is to remain patient if you believe in the merit of a project, as I do with Noble's very large-scale project in Western Australia. I know there are people listening to this show who are very unhappy with Noble's price performance, so I asked Quentin Henning if he could provide a statement that I could read to listeners on this show. He agreed to do so, and this is what he gave me to pass along to you. And I quote, <clears throat> Quentin, uh, in quotes now, I am very optimistic about this coming year. While it has been rough in the short term, I am looking down the road at a lot of good things to come, end of quote. And uh, I didn't get specifics from Quentin, but reading uh, the press releases and talking to him occasionally, I have in mind he's talking about mechanical sorting. Uh, that's a technology that has been used extremely successful in diamond production, has not been used in Gold production until now, but the, all of the work that they've done up to this date suggests it's going to be, it should be, it is expected to be very successful. And what that means for Novo is that they can pick up uh, gold from these extremely coarse nugget uh, projects, concentrate it on site, and then haul a concentrate to the mill. Uh, that's that's the uh, the idea, and of course they are working on it now to make sure that it is foolproof and uh, that it will work. Uh, but that is one thing I know he's he's looking at very carefully, and we should be hearing some news on that in the not too distant future. 
Also, uh, Quentin's strength, of course, is his exploration expertise, and he is very much involved uh, as an advisor to the company in his role as a non-executive co-chairman to help the company in their exploration exploits, and they have had some some very positive results uh, in and around the Nulligan Mill. So I wouldn't be surprised at all to find them uh, delineating some some sources, some resources of gold to the mill. Uh, that should that could be very helpful in the not too distant future as well. So those are some of the things I believe that are on the horizon that I think are going to help uh, Novo ultimately come out of this. And keep in mind as well, in addition to the thirty-two million dollars uh, Canadian dollars that they have in the till right now, they also have uh, a huge stake in Newfound Gold, which will provide a substantial uh, resource, a financial resource for them uh, that, as they need to use it uh, going forward. So. I know at least one gold industry executive who has been buying these shares on the way down. Uh, that's a difficult thing to do. Most people start buying when the shares go up. Uh, I will be personally watching this company very closely, and we will have Quentin on the show, I'm sure, in the not-too-distant future to give us an update. Um, turning to today's show, I've titled the show Beating the S&P 500 with Kevin Duffy. Kevin Duffy, Patrick Highsmith, and Michael Oliver return as guests this week. Over the last 16 months, Kevin Duffy's conservative coffee can portfolio has gained 54.14% compared to a gain of 43.8% for the S&P 500. He achieved that result despite 20.20% held in reserves, 7.71% in portfolio insurance, and 18.15% in gold stocks, which, as we all know too well, have not performed very well over the last year. Unlike the S&P 500, Kevin's coffee can portfolio appears to be in a position to profit from or at least reduce losses in a major equity bear market. And keep in mind that Kevin was hugely successful in the 2008-2009 bear market in which he made huge profits uh, in the fund that he was managing then. Kevin will join us uh, to share his investment philosophy, provide his views on the economy, and let us know how he has positioned his position, his portfolio to weather a growing inflationary threat and at the same time protect his wealth from a likely equity bear market. Given that U.S. equities are the most overvalued they have ever been in American history and given that there is a huge amount of foreign money invested in U.S. equities, the threat of a major decline in stocks as interest rates rise must be taken seriously. So you won't want to miss uh, what Kevin has to say, and that's coming in the second half of today's show. In just a few minutes, Patrick Highsmith will be joining me to introduce the story of Timberline Resources. That's a new sponsor to this show. Timberline has large, highly prospective gold uh, exploration targets in Nevada. And uh, Patrick, like his friend and former Newmont geologist, colleague of of his, Quentin Henning, Patrick is of the same philosophy that uh, when you're looking for gold and silver deposits, you have to go big or go home. The smaller deposits simply don't cut it. They're not economically viable in most cases. So uh, I would expect that uh, Patrick will talk about some of these large targets that he's looking at in Nevada. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that uh, one of our most favorite guests, Michael Oliver, uh, is with us once again and uh, really pleased to have him join me. It's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to follow Michael's work. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Well, it's good to have you back, especially on a day like today. And now we're seeing uh, big declines in the equity markets in the United States and uh, I suppose around the world. But I just saw some information recently that the U.S. equities 
are you know more overvalued relative to almost any metric you want to look at than than other countries. Uh, that a lot of the other lesser developed countries seem to have much more reasonably priced equities relative to their earnings and so forth and GDP and all that. But anyway, what are your thoughts about the equity markets or, or take it wherever you want, whatever you want to talk about first? Well, I, I know there's a lot of fundamental metrics that, that argue what you just said, but the U.S. market is definitely overvalued by this metric or that metric. And mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, from a technical perspective, uh, especially measuring the long-term momentum of the market, We've described it as the biggest bubble ever mm-hmm. in the stock market history. Mm-hmm. And big bubbles break, okay, period, exclamation mm-hmm. point. Uh, we think the Fed, which created the bubble, will also break the bubble, and they're probably on course to do that over the last, since June, when they started talking about tapering and now rate increases. And mm-hmm. so their favorite markets that they supported and outright bought over the last year and a half, up to summer of this year anyway, uh, like uh, muni bond futures, uh, excuse me, muni bond ETFs, uh, uh, high yield corporate debt ETFs. They literally bought these things uh, outright um, to support them. And now they've ceased, and these markets are now uh, taking out the lows of the last year and a half, the muni bonds, for mm-hmm. example, um, whereas the S&P is just coming off its high. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that the stock market, met what we primarily focus on, aside from a few key stocks, Microsoft, Amazon, and Apple, we think that as those three go, the world goes. Okay? Mm-hmm. But we also look at the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100, and they're fracturing certain levels. Uh, we, we won't put up the full red light yet, but they're definitely dancing on top of glass, and it looks yeah. like they're ready to go through it. Uh, we don't think there's going to be a crash-like event like we had in early 2020, where mm-hmm. we dropped 35% in three weeks, and our definition of a crash is about that. That's mm-hmm. what happened in 29. That's what happened in 87. It was of the 30, 35% dimension in weeks. Uh, what we're looking for is a major top signaled, and we have our numbers very specific, mm-hmm. um, and they're not far below. And if they're triggered, we think we'll have the onset probably of a first drop being of the dimension of, oh, maybe 20%. Mm-hmm. And that's a, it's an idiot number because so many people believe in that issue of, well, if it's more than 20%, it's a bear market. Uh-huh. You know, heard, you know, it's so silly. I don't yeah. know where they come up with that number. But anyway, but it happens to be that we think that the first bounce point is about 20% below here. Now, if that occurred, of course, extreme doubt would sweep the markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of asset managers who've been very doubtful, like Ray Dalio's of the world and so forth, will say, I told you. Okay, mm-hmm. and a lot of the younger asset managers who were, you know, all glib and happy will suddenly get some sense of reality. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Fed will get a sense of reality. So mm-hmm. this, this notion of we're going to raise, 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 raise. Well, look what's happened just over the last, let's say, couple, several weeks. They're going to raise rates, right? Okay. So what's happened? The Bloomberg Commodity Index from the December low about four weeks ago has rallied over 10%. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so it's not intimidated. Like yeah, said, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, the NASDAQ 100 has dropped almost that much since the high of three weeks ago. So yeah. which market is most vulnerable to the Fed wanting to, quote, stop inflation? They've never wanted to really stop inflation because if you look at the history of it, since uh, 2008 and nine when they went, went into the QE stuff, uh, they inflated. Mm-hmm. And the inflation went into an area that was okay for them, stock market, mm-hmm. uni bonds, junk debt, and so forth. 
That was acceptable, quote, inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when the commodities start to turn up, after mm-hmm. being smashed for, you know, since the 2011 highs, Bloomberg Commodity Index was up at 180-something. It dropped to about 50. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's only at 104, so it's hardly, <laughs> you know, it's not even back to the 2011 highs, and yet they want to smash it. Well, mm-hmm. the problem is what they're going to smash is their own, their own bubble. Mm-hmm. And I think gold knows that. Mm-hmm. And it knows that ultimately the central banks of the Western world, including Japan, uh, ECB, uh, BOJ, and the Fed, will at some point have to give up any notion of fighting inflation in the manner which they're talking about, mm-hmm. because it's going to destroy their bubbles. Mm-hmm. And, and we definitely have the biggest bubble. Now, if, if they have to reverse course, what, what's gold going to do? Oh, my well, goodness. Yeah, they're they're going to go back to monetary stimulus again, which is what they do. That's what the Fed has done for over 100 years. The only issue is the rate at which they do it. So we live in an interesting time, and I think you've got to watch that stock market because I think the Fed will at some point suddenly realize, "Uh uh-oh, we've got to come up with some new terminology. (laughs) (laughs) Some new spin. I don't know how they change policy after changing policy so abruptly as they just have. Now, and again, look at a gold chart. (coughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Back in mid-June is when they had their their first announcement of tapering and potential rate increases, Fed meeting, Fed Fed minutes. Well, Mm -hmm. look at mid-June. We're in 1840, 50, 60 area. Where's gold right now? It's trading around 1820. So if you shorted based on that news, quote, new fundamental. Yeah. It's been repeated and repeated and increased and increased in terms of its volume. Uh, yeah, gold is sitting here. You know, if you're short, you're making 20, 30 bucks if you're lucky. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What we think is going on right now on a short-term basis, silver just crossed some numbers today that look pretty good, that indicate to us they might get to a really key level. And for silver, a really key level is just a ballpark at around $24.5. We're trading mm-hmm. 2360 right now. You close mm-hmm. the week out around 24 and a half, and we think silver is ready to launch. Mm-hmm. And it will join what gold said in November when it went through some key levels and has remained above them basically since then. Silver mm-hmm. will join in. And I think when that occurs, it's at that point that the <coughs> miners in particular will mm-hmm. flower, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start to perform well. Uh, right. So we, anyway. We're getting close, yeah. I think. Yeah, so yeah, I know you needed to see silver confirm the move in gold, and it didn't happen the first time. So it, no, this is a, a very... stopped a penny and a half short of our number. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's looking very strong. I mean, the last I looked, it was up some 50 cents today. So it's, uh, silver's having a great day. What about the miners, Michael, with just about 30 seconds left here? Okay, the real key thing <laughs> on the miners is, one, if silver does cross our numbers, uh, again, ballpark at around 24 and a half on a weekly close, uh, the miners will likely then engage. They're, you know, they're laggards. They're like a slingshot. You know, mm-hmm. they, they go real low when you go down, and then they flip-flop, and they, they're extremely powerful on the upside. What we're watching on the miners right now is a very interesting spread relationship between the GDX ETF and mm-hmm. the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. And it looks to us like that spread relationship, meaning the relative performance of miners versus the broad stock market, is bottoming. Mm-hmm. And it won't take a lot in terms of a good weekly close on that spread for us to declare, okay, the spread has shifted. Miners are now going to outperform the S&P again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The last time we had such a signal based on momentum, 
was about a week or, uh, excuse me, about one month after that March low in 2020. Remember when they bagged the uh-huh. coal miners yep. and yep. they flipped up sharply. The spread broke out and not only did the spread perform well, there was beat the S&P for the next four or five months uh, dramatically, uh, but net price of, of, the net, of GDX exploded. Mm-hmm. We think we're in a similar situation now. We're not at the numbers yet, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't take a heck of a lot of relative performance shift favoring the miners mm-hmm. to then outperform the S&P going forward, which could be a combination of two things. One, S&P decline and also gold miners going up, which mm-hmm. is our suspicion of how it will turn out. But we're very close to that point right now. Mm-hmm. All right. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for your insights. Again, always valued, uh, very highly valued by our listeners, and I want to thank you for sharing them with us. All thank right, you. folks. Well, you bet, Michael. Well, folks, don't go away because we're going to be right back with Patrick Highsmith, who's going to give us a story, a new story to this uh, to this show. It's Timberline Resources. Patrick Highsmith will be with me right after the break. Don't go away. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back, Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me once again Patrick Highsmith, and he's here today to introduce Timberline Resources. That's a uh, recently uh, a recent new s- uh, sponsor to this show, and I'm really pleased uh, to have him here to talk about it. It is a company that I've added to my newsletter as well and uh, looking to pick up some shares myself uh, as soon as I can here and get around to it. Patrick uh, is the president and CEO of Timberline Resources. That's a mineral exploration resource development company focused on gold and copper discoveries in north central Nevada. Uh, and he has, of course, uh, been with us before. He has a, a, a very rich background as a professional geologist, mining executive, over 29 years of experience in exploration, operations, business development. He's been with some of the big guys, Rio Tinto, BH Billiton, Newmont, um, several other companies, Fortescue Metals, for example, and he's worked on more than 250 projects around the world, leading uh, teams through creative transactions and uh, new discoveries, scoping and pre-feasibility studies. He also has uh, experience in the capital market. So in my view, Patrick has all of those uh, talents and skills that are needed to head up a junior 
mining company and do it successfully. Uh, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us again. Good afternoon, Jay. Good to be here. It's always good to have you with us, and uh, I should tell our listeners that uh, that uh, Timberline trades in Canada under the symbol TBR. You can buy it down here in the States under TLRS, TLRS. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Patrick, but I've got you for 43.5 million shares, and I saw you trading around 17 cents in the U.S., which if that share count is right, you're only about a $7, 8000000 million market cap, U.S. money. Does that sound right? Sorry, Jay, you probably, because we're a U.S. issuer, it might look funny to you when you pull up share information. Our total shares outstanding is around $140 million, uh, Oh, Jay. wow. So it's okay. a, it's well, a bit of a just, venerable company, as a matter of fact. But, well, yeah. well, $140 million shares, I guess I have to be a little more careful and, and check my numbers. But even so, at $0.17, cents, it's still a very small market cap, so we'd be looking at something a little over $20, $20 million or so, I guess, right? So, um, yeah, so, well, maybe a little more than that, but still a baby. Um, let's put it that way. Uh, okay, so I've, I've known the name Timberline for some time. Uh, I believe you've sort of shifted gears in recent years, though. I think, um, can you talk about the history of the company? Yeah, very very briefly, Jay. The, the company does go back to the early 2000s. A lot of people will, will know of, of Timberline, and there are a couple reasons for that. We are a U.S. issuer, and in, in those days, we were an NYSE markets-listed company. Now, there's, mm-hmm. there's some logic to that, because the company was known as a developer of larger projects, really an, mm-hmm. an incipient producer, almost, in the case of, say, Butte Highlands in Montana, a polymetallic uh-huh. deposit there. So, so it had been on the bigger board, and then weathering some tough cycles, of course, as we do in this business, um, it did a pretty sizable transaction by acquiring Staccato Gold Resources in 2010. And that, in fact, brought in a big Carlin-type project called Eureka. And, in fact, when I was at Newmont managing business development at Newmont, I'd had a look at Staccato's assets in Eureka. <laughs> so um, with that acquisition, Timberline was a multi-project company uh, with this Eureka project coming up as a, as a prominent project within the company, but still working in Montana, uh, working elsewhere in Nevada. But in about uh, 2015, uh, the focus sort of shifted entirely to Nevada. And then in about 2020, uh, Jay, it really became a pure gold play once again. It had copper mm-hmm. and polymetallic projects in it. And with that focus... It wasn't long after that that Quentin Henney and I had a look at this in, in, uh, early in the summer of 2020, and, uh, and really about 15 months ago, uh, he and I sort of facilitated, I think, uh, working with Timberline uh, and, and bringing in Crescat Capital into a sizable financing in which we raised uh, about $3.7 million U.S. Um, mm-hmm. I joined the company as CEO subsequent to that, um, and we focused that treasury pretty much entirely on what we believe to be much higher grade potential at the Eureka mm-hmm. project than had currently existed in the resource there, which was published mm-hmm. back in 2013. And we were mm-hmm. on record uh, back in the day, Quentin and myself as well, believing to see potential for more than 3 million ounces of gold at the Eureka project alone. Mm-hmm. And we do have a couple mm-hmm. of more projects in Nevada, but Eureka is the big one and it's our focus. Okay, that's your focus, Nevada and, and Carlin style targets. I guess it's on the Battle Mountain trend, isn't it? Towards the southern end of the Battle Mountain trend? That's right, That's Jay. We, yeah. we like mm-hmm. trends. We, we, we yeah. like being where the gold is. And the Battle Mountain Eureka trend is one of the, the most prolific gold-producing belts in Nevada. 
And, of course, uh, Eureka District is near the south end of that. It's got a lot of historic production. It also produced a lot of silver lead zinc back in the day. And these are carlin-type deposits, Jay, and we've talked about that probably before. These are sediment-hosted deposits that tend to have favorable characteristics that that can drive good economics. For instance, they are often bulk-mineable deposits. They often have very attractive grades. And in fact, if you look at Nevada, the majority of Nevada's 5 million ounce production comes from Carlin-type deposits, and and usually Mm -hmm. on these major trends and from the major companies. And that's why we're there with our our Eureka project. So maybe you could talk about people, because people are very, very important. You have the technical skills there, I believe, Patrick. Could you just touch on that a moment? Yeah, the, the team at, at Timberline is uh, is worthy of some note. I mean, we've streamlined this board down to only five persons, and yet mm-hmm. we still have well over 150 uh, person years of experience on that board. And importantly, Jay, we also have about 20% ownership of the stock at the mm-hmm. board and management level. Mm-hmm. So when you combine mm-hmm. that with great shareholders like Crescat, we've got a lot of shares in good hands. In mm-hmm. addition to technical folks uh, who've been around and well-known in the industry, uh, Dave Mathewson's one of our technical advisors and was, still is and was previously on the board. We, uh, Lee Freeman is our chairman, well-known industry, uh, uh, both management expert and consultant and, and technical person. We recently added Pam Saxton to the board, and she's our, our sort of lead finance director, and she's been in the leadership at Thompson Creek Metals, Franco, Nevada, oh. Person mm-hmm. Gold, Amex Gold. So she shares our audit committee and adds that non-technical, you know, strength that we uh, were looking to bolster. Uh, on the ground, our technical team is led by Dr. Steve Osterberg, PhD with, with more than 30 years of experience. And, and Steve and I first worked together at BHP in the 1990s. So it's a team that, that we know each other well, diverse experience, really good, strong senior leadership and we've added some new talent, and, and some of the audience may have seen some of our recent geologic maps and cross-sections, which have been sort of updated quite a bit. And that effort's been led by a, a brilliant structural geologist by the name of Dr. Chris Klinkscales, who's been out mm-hmm. leading our mapping efforts. And so, you know, there's new blood in the team, and Chris, who's, who's sort of, you know, mid-30s, and then there's the more gray hairs. And, of course, Quentin uh, over at Crescat is an, uh, is an often, uh, you know, technical uh, consultant for us with whom we brainstorm and, and talk about mm-hmm. these ideas and targets. So really thrilled mm-hmm. with the team. And it has been through a bit of a transformation to lean up and, and, and add the strength where we need it and keep that technical team strong. Uh, you have a drill program that I think you're getting close to finishing now. Uh, can you talk about that? And are, will there be some results coming out soon? Yes, finally there will. And and what a, <laughs> what a drill program it's been. It, it was dramatically affected by the availability of drilling crews. And, of course, mm-hmm. we all know the assay labs in Nevada are quite busy. And let, let me just say one thing. Uh, you know, we have a resource already in the Eureka Project at, at a mm-hmm. deposit called Lookout Mountain. And that's been published uh, in compliance with 43101 since 2013. It's about a half million ounces of gold, Jay, near surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is low grade. It's about 0.018 ounces per ton or 0.62 grams per ton. Mm-hmm. But that's in the measured and indicated categories and includes a lot of oxide. So the reason mm-hmm. I bring that up now is that was the focus for the company at first. Let's see if a mm-hmm. smaller heap leach operation can be put into production on the mm-hmm. strength of that foundational resource. 
when we came in and sort of shifted gears a little bit, we realized there's a high-grade core there, not only in the resource footprint, but to the east of it in an area called the water well zone, just down dip of the resource, but outside of it. More consistent grades of, of two to five grams per ton have been drilled there since its discovery in 2015. So that's been the emphasis of the drill program we're currently involved in. We are literally about to collar the final hole in the program. Jay, it'll bring us to over 21,000 feet of drilling, about mm-hmm. 6,500 meters. And uh, the really the focus of that has been the water well zone. Um, and we've reported, I think, uh, five holes back in October from the first sort of phase of this year's drilling. And we hit some good numbers. The water well yeah. zone turned up uh, 11 meters at 2.36 grams, another interval uh, within that of 6 meters of 3 grams included, another thicker interval, 16.76 meters at almost 2 grams, that included 3 meters of higher grade at 4.56 grams. So this Mm -hmm. water well zone is starting to take shape, Jay. So what we did is we focused a lot of holes there, so that when this drilling is complete, we expect to, to see the geometry of that water well zone just east of the resource, potentially, mm-hmm. of course, uh, accretive additions to the resource. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other exciting element, and there was a press release in early December when our uh, another target, the Oswego trend, really came alive. Uh-huh. And here again, Jay, it's this huge project, you know, 28 square miles, over 70 square kilometers of ground that's seen exploration uh, in multiple generations, but no work had been done at Oswego since about 1991. And mm-hmm. we've done some surface sampling there that suggested there was a long area of over 12 grams per ton at surface along a structure. We returned there with some mechanized exploration this time. We put in channels for which we used diamond saws so we could cut this very hard silicified rock along this fault. And we also brought in an excavator for a few trenches. And we press released in December that we did, in fact, confirm uh, intervals of up to 26 meters of 14.4 grams of gold mm. at the surface, another mm. interval of 27 meters of 12.02 grams at the surface. Now, those were along a fault, Jay, in really mm. hard rock that we could mm-hmm. not cut across with the excavator. So, in other mm-hmm. words, they're not true thickness. We, mm. we, would, we would literally have to blast that to sample yeah. it perpendicular. So, mm-hmm. so, there's a nice area of potential to the east there. We don't know the true thickness of that, and your audience can look at maps in our presentations to see that. But we did cut some trenches across it as well, showing more oxide mineralization at surface over true widths of 8 to about 11 meters, ranging in grade from 1.7 grams per ton of oxide up to 3.63 grams per ton of oxide over Uh 10.7 meters. So what that's Uh telling you is you had this Oswego structure, highly mineralized. When those results came back, we were able to mobilize the drill rig over there in the middle of a drill program from the water well zone, just mm-hmm. one kilometer to the east, so quite close, a little over half a mile. And we put six holes through that Oswego fault zone, uh, RC drill holes through that structure, uh, and uh, those will be some of the results that will really start kind of flooding out here in, in Q1, Jay. I believe we're sitting at more than or approximately 18 holes. Oh, day, wow. Okay. Various stages of... We've still got core being cut. We've got samples awaiting pickup from the lab. We've got, obviously, a lot of them in sample preparation and in the lab. So the news flow will start in the next um, couple of weeks before the end of January, and then it will continue right through the first quarter. And, and the highlights will be 
water well zone? Did we fill in mm-hmm. a footprint there to see that nice volume of, of better grade mineralization taking shape? And Oswego, can we mm-hmm. confirm in drilling down dip uh, the grades that we see at surface that are so exciting at Oswego in an area that, that uh, some guys had found some good gold back in 1991, but no one had been there since. Mm-hmm. So a lot of excitement right. there, and I guess if there's an upside to the to the slowdown in drilling and assay labs, Jay, it's that it leads to a good first quarter news flow um, yeah. as the results finally do come in. Right. Well, we'll certainly be looking forward to that. And it sounds like we could have some very pleasant surprises, perhaps uh, wake up the market to uh, to the potential of Timberline. Uh, just one last thing. How about financing? Are you okay uh, going through or are you going to need to raise some more money in this year? Yeah, we had a good raise uh, in the summer, Jay, and at our at our financial year end, which was end of September, for which we mm-hmm. filed our 10K annual report. You'll you'll see a uh, cash balance of well over 3.3 million dollars, mm-hmm. uh, and we expect we've estimated that at the end of this drill program, when all the work is completed, we'll have around US 1 million, and of course mm-hmm. a lot of data to crunch on and a lot of news flow to get through. Uh, before we would need uh, any more money, uh, Jay. So, yeah. so hope, we expect and plan for a very big uh, summer season. But as we're demonstrating right now, we can drill in winter if we need to. Uh, great mm-hmm. conditions out there right now. So uh, we're in good shape uh, for the foreseeable future and a lot of news flow to, uh, to feed out to uh, shareholders and followers over the first quarter here. All right, Patrick. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, a lot to look forward to, and we'll look to keep up with the story, that's for sure. Um, all right. Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Kevin Duffy is going to be with us to talk about his coffee can portfolio done extremely well. And uh, Kevin is no stranger to bear markets. He's done. He made a fortune during the last financial crisis. So uh, we'll t- want to hear what he has to say about this market right now and uh, how he's done so well with his coffee can portfolio. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Kevin Duffy. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again Kevin Duffy. Kevin is uh, a principal of Bearing Asset Management, uh, which he uh, co-founded in uh, 2002, and uh, he had a tremendous track record during the last bear market, uh, the, the big one, 2008-2009, the financial crisis. And uh, so not a lot of people made a lot of money, but Kevin uh, and his uh, Bearing Asset Management was one uh, firm that did, and so we think it might be very timely to have him with us today. But Kevin has also learned how to make money in good markets, and that was uh, something he had a bit more trouble with and had to learn how to do it. And and it seems as though, from what I'm understanding about the performance of the coffee can portfolio, he's done uh, very well with that as well. So uh, I, I'm really pleased to have Kevin with us again. And I should say before I say hello to Kevin, it's the coffeecanportfolio.com the coffeecanportfolio.com. Go there to learn more about his letter. It is uh, it, it is um, very reasonably priced, I might add, and uh, lots of good information in there, I think, that might be very helpful to, uh, to many of you. So, Kevin, thanks for joining me today. Jay, thanks for having me back on. It's really good to have you with us, and I, I want to um, ask you just maybe to start out with before we get to your investment philosophy and how you've learned to make money in good markets as well as bad, uh, is is would just your view of the markets in general right now? I mean, I think we, you know Michael Oliver was on with us earlier, and he sort of agreed that the U.S. equity markets are perhaps the most overvalued they've ever been. Uh, maybe notwithstanding recent weakness, but just give us your idea about the economy, the global economy, the U.S. economy, and just markets in general. Sure. Uh, well, I think if we if we step back. Uh, to before the pandemic and then what's happened since, um, that was really the excuse for a tremendous amount of economic stimulus. We got about five five to six trillion dollars in stimulus um, for, and of course, uh, there was a lot of um, pork involved in that. So for every one dollar in stimulus checks, about eight dollars went to special interests. Um, Since the end of 2019, Government spending has climbed about 21%. Uh, public debt has gone from 23 trillion to almost 29 trillion, um, and of course we've had a big increase in the in the Fed's balance sheet from 4 trillion to not quite 9 trillion dollars. Um, so really, a, a you know a pretty significant increase in the Fed's balance sheet. Um, in fact, if we go back to 2008, the um, the increase in the Fed's balance sheet was about 8% of GDP, and this time it's about 18% of GDP. Mm. Um, so this, um, and I think it's a combination of, of not only all the stimulus, but in trying to basically lock down and shut down an economy and reopen it, and all of the uh, incentives and disincentives that were involved really caused a lot of problems last year. Um, also, economists estimated that about a third of the stimulus money went into the stock market, so it really um, unleashed 
a, a tidal wave of speculation, um, unlike anything we have seen really since 2000. So we got this incredible boom in venture capital record, venture capital money last year, um, IPOs, of course, the SPACs. So you got this wild speculation um, that really peaked around January uh, and February of last year. So if we look at the uh, net new highs in the, in the market, um, NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, um, that peaked in February last year of plus 2,000 roughly. And um, since then, we've had a really significant deterioration in the, um, uh, the stocks that the, the retail investor was speculating in, the meme mm-hmm. stocks. Uh, you know, GameStop is down 67% from its its high. Uh, AMC down 69%. Um, Arc, the um, a lot of mm-hmm. money went into the Kathy Wood Arc Invest funds. The Arc Innovation ETF has been cut in half since mm-hmm. then. So we've really had this sort of stealth bear market. I think since uh, February of last year, and. Um, and yet the, uh, the retail investor has received, re- refused to leave the casino. So, um, you know, there has been last year margin debt went up uh, 18% and the margin debt is at, at an all time high, uh, got up to 4% of GDP. And if we look at the last couple of bubbles, just for uh, perspective, uh, they were at uh, about 3% of GDP. So. Wow. You know, I think we've we've had the party. Last year was the this crazy party, and this year uh, we're starting to get the hangover. Mm. Well, a hangover, but so far, you know, in in the past, as you pointed out, um, a rich uncle, I'd be Jay Powell, I guess, in the Federal Reserve has always been there to sort of keep things going. Um, but you're suggesting that's not likely to be the case this time. Yeah. So we have a, a real problem with. Um, you know, inflation is starting to uh, to bubble up. And, um, you know, it's interesting to go back to something like the Barron's Roundtable last year, and everybody was sort of pimping for stimulus, and uh, don't worry, uh, <coughs> inflation is, is contained, or price inflation more accurately. And uh, at first, the, the, the feds thought that it was transitory, and, uh, you know, now... That, uh, that inflation genie is kind of out of the bag. We've got 7% um, year-over-year CPI, which is the highest since 1982. Um, and so the Fed is starting to backtrack. And the problem is that, you know, the starting point, we're at basically 0% Fed funds rate. Uh-huh. Um, the, the 10-year Treasury is now pushing 2%, so 1.86%. Um, I think probably the, the best indicator, one of the best indicators of just how cheap money is, is the um, 10-year tips yield, which got under negative 1%. So basically, the, the federal government is able to, to borrow money for, you know, less than the implied inflation rate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this should really be going to a plus 1%, plus 2%, maybe plus 3%. So we've got you know, I, I personally think that that some of the supply chain issues will uh, resolve themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we will get beyond COVID 
and um, some of the labor issues will resolve themselves, but but not all of them, certainly. I think we will be uh, stuck with a, a sort of a nagging and chronic um, inflation. But um, with the 10-year Treasury at 1.86% and CPI at 7%, even if that were to pull back, if we go to positive real rates, you know, we, we're going to have to see the 10-year go up, I don't know, you know, 4 5 percent up to four mm-hmm. or five percent so i think the fed's hands right now are are tied um and i think the market is starting to kind of connect these dots um the you know the real problem is in companies that are uh really the, the growth part of the market um the growthier stocks and then especially firms the the money losing um tech uh unicorns you know so we we're getting this. Um, we're getting this shift definitely, and it's um, it's really been back towards value. So um, mm-hmm. this year, for example, just year to date, you know, if you if you go back over the the last five years, um, growth has really outperformed value, and this is in part because of the uh, the low interest rate environment. I think you know the the shift that's going on. We're still probably early innings in in all this, mm-hmm. and. Um, Year to date, the um, the the Russell 1000 um, uh, growth index is uh, is down about seven percent, with the, um, the Russell 1000 value index about flat. Mm-hmm. Now, to put that in perspective, the uh, the growth index over the past five years outperformed the value index by about 18 percent per year. Oh. So, I think we're still very early in this shift from, uh, uh, you know, from, from growth to, to value. Mm-hmm. Kevin, I just have to wonder, I mean, if, if, the, if interest rates continue to rise and, you know, you've got pension funds and junk bonds and in margin and munis and in the stock market too, because they couldn't get any yields uh, in, in uh, you know, in, in safe treasuries anymore, doesn't that put a tremendous amount of pressure on the Fed to do something to start juicing it up again? I think they're boxed in. I, I really feel that right now the problem is um, that they have lost control of, of price inflation. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really tying their hands. I feel that they are way behind the curve. And um, I'm not saying that uh, that the Fed won't panic at the next crisis, but um, it's going to take a crisis. And I think the next crisis has to be that the stimulus drug wears off which I believe it, it will, and I believe at, at some point, and I don't know whether it's S&P 500 down you know, 10%, 20%, 50%, but I think it's got to be a combination of uh, serious weakness in the stock market and also a, uh, a global recession. That's what's going to what it will take. But right now, I think they're they're um, we're in the, we're in a, a period right now where I think that the Fed's hands are severely tied. Mm-hmm. When you have when you have CPI running at at seven percent, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the ten year under two percent, I mean that's negative five percent real yields. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's just not much they can do. No. Well, Kevin, you had uh, at the at Bearings Asset uh, Management, you you did extremely well in the in the financial crisis two thousand. A two thousand nine. Uh, real quickly, how did you do that? How did you manage to make so much money at, at that point in time? Well, what we 
What we focused on was um, where we thought the bubble was. And I think, you know, one of the lessons that I have learned is that it's a market of stocks, not a stock market. Mm-hmm. And so we can focus on all the negatives. We're, we're in this everything bubble today. You know, back then, uh, we recognized that the bubble, that the tech bubble had been replaced. And that was really um, a bubble in first mover advantage. Um, and that's where the big shakeout took place in, in 2000 to 2002. But, um, you know, in that tech bubble was replaced with a housing and, and a credit bubble. And we felt like um, uh, uh, it, that it was a bubble and that the um, extenders of, of credit uh, were going to be uh, hit hardest. And so we basically, you know, we made a, a pretty big bet in terms of um, some shorts, but mostly put options on the, the too big to fail banks um, the, the home builders, the subprime lenders, that sort of thing. And, and it was, you know, here's another thing that I think is important and um, kind of explains how we were able to do what we did, um, that that the unraveling of a bubble tends to be a, um, a process. It doesn't tend to be an event. So you what you had was you had waves. You had waves of, um, at first it was the subprime bubble bursting, and then there was a lot of talk about how that was isolated and contained. And so what happened was you get this casino effect where the speculators refuse to leave the casino. And even though the craps table shuts down, they come back in and they, <coughs> they drive other things up. So what happened was we were getting this, we would make money, let's say, shorting the subprime bubble. And then... Uh, other areas would bubble up and we would short those. So it was kind of like waiting for a wave to ride. We'd ride that, get on our surfboard, go back out, ride another one. And so there were opportunities to actually compound on the short side Mm -hmm. uh, during that whole period from really uh, beginning in 2007 to um, about the, you know, really the fourth quarter of 2008. so then you, uh, I think, as I recall, uh, you know, adjusting then to a market that had stabilized, uh, you had to make some changes in your thinking, I believe, which leads me to your sort of general philosophy of investing, if you'd like to just talk about that. Because as I understand it, you've done very well uh, with the coffee can portfolio. So give us your general philosophy, your investment philosophy now. Yeah, um, you know, I will admit that, you know, I um, stayed at the party too long. I stayed short uh, way too long, and it was extremely costly. Um, it uh, kind of forced um, a, you know, meet Jesus moment and going back and rethinking um, everything. I mean, I had to just take it right down to the foundation. And so um, that's why one reason why I started writing the newsletter and um, the and I have have come up with a, a number of, of rules, and you know what? I, one of the things that I'm trying to do is really focus on uh, on getting back balance. That even though you have bubbles, bubbles create anti bubbles, so they create mm-hmm. opportunities on the long side. Mm-hmm. And um, as far as the philosophy, there's really we're we're you know we're in a game. The investment game is is what I like to call it, and um, Anytime you're in a in a game, you're competing with other people. So you need to know what your advantage is. What what is your unfair advantage? And 
Uh, part of that is knowing yourself, getting to really understand yourself, and also knowing who else is around you. So um, when we see novices enter the game, you know, our, our eyes kind of get like spaghetti plates. But, <laughs> you know, getting back to where, at least where I felt I had an edge, um, and part of it is understanding where you don't have an edge. Um, mm-hmm. I absolutely have no edge in, in the short term. I have, I'm a horrible trader. I, I have no idea what's going to happen, you know, from, from minute to minute or day to day or month to month. But um, so the first part was to just focus on the long term. And the coffee can idea was to look at 10 years. Um, but, you know, I like to look, I'm not saying that every position in the portfolio looks out that long, but um, the co- at least the coffee can section of the portfolio, which is about 30%, are companies that I feel like, if the market shut down tomorrow, I'd be willing to own these stocks for for 10 years, for a decade. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so the long term is the first part of it. Um, the second part of it is to be a, a generalist, to really cast a wide net. Um, I think that that um, that most investors tend to be specialists. I think this industry has become ex- incredibly specialized, and so. Um, what, what I realized, so, so for example, um, some people call themselves value investors, some people call themselves growth investors, and I'm both. I'm not married to either one. So um, if, if growth stocks happen to be on sale or I find things that interest me in the growth aisle, then I'm going to go shopping there. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's important to cast a wide net, have flexibility, and have uh, a lot of tools in your in your toolbox. You know, when when you're so narrow narrowly focused, um, you know, all you have is a hammer and everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Um, the third part of the of where I think we can get a competitive edge is being a contrarian. Um, mm-hmm. You know, avoiding the crowd, being skeptical of the crowd, um, being aware of of simple narratives. And when something like this comes along. Um, like uh, the stimulus is going to work or or the vaccines are the magic bullet, you know, to step back and look for the nuance, look, be skeptical of that. I think if you just focus on the crowd and you pick apart their narratives, um, it's a great way to, to, to be a, an above average investor. And then the fourth part of the philosophy is to, um, and I think this is contrarian in itself, um, is to look at the world through a non-interventionist or a an Austrian lens. And um, I think most people in this business, a lot of very successful people are are really interventionists. So they fall for um, uh, scams like the stimulus. You know, they really believe this would work. Um, I think it also it also uh, t- teaches us to avoid, companies and industries that are highly dependent on the government, uh, like defense companies or electric vehicles right now, um, and also avoid um, companies that are dependent on cheap credit because mm-hmm. um, like the, the money-losing tech unicorns that I, I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. All right, Kevin, we just have a, maybe a minute and a half here yet, and I wanted to, we could go another hour, I think, with, with everything <laughs> here. But for example, uh, you have these themes and I should tell people, get Kevin's letter. It's, I think it's $109 a year, something like that, Kevin. Is that right? It's very inexpensive. Yes, uh, it's $109. And, I, I publish um, uh, six times a year. 
And part of that is because I like to just step back and, and not mm-hmm. get caught up in the day to day. So the themes, um, yeah. there are about a dozen themes, Jay, mm-hmm. and, and we mm-hmm. obviously we don't have a lot of no. time, enough time no. to go into them. I mentioned um, the fact that I think value stocks are going to outperform. So mm-hmm. one of the themes is that um, active managers have been just um, destroyed over mm-hmm. the past five years. And, um, for example, and passive investing has been the wave. So mm-hmm. BlackRock trades at a little over seven times revenue, whereas Franklin Resources trades at two times revenue. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, a, an op- I think, an opportunity to look in, in that area. Okay, uh, we're going we're gonna to have to leave it go with that, Kevin. But I would just say there's so yeah. many themes. And, folks, uh, sub- sign up for Kevin's letter. I suppose you can give, give them the last letter uh, if they sign up, Kevin. But there's so many Great ideas in here. We just don't have time. My uh, my engineer is saying we're 30 seconds, uh, so we have to leave it go at that. Uh, but it is, again, uh, the website is, I guess it's the coffeecanportfolio.com, right, Kevin? That's it. All right, folks. Well, we have to leave it go at that. Uh, so that is all the time we have. Next week, uh, we're going to be talking to John Rabino, and Patrick Highsmith will be back with us to talk about Firefox Gold. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Firefox Gold is exploring in Finland in the midst of an exciting new gold rush. Firefox successfully drilled high-grade and visible gold in 2021 and is now active at four prospective projects with plans to drill continuously through the first half of 2022. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, are driving the company to discovery, and the stage is set for Firefox to identify multiple new gold deposits. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX and on the OTCQB at FFOXF. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates.